Well, everybody, welcome back to Study Plus, where we take an issue that is in the scriptures, as Mike teaches through uh, 1 Corinthians right now on Wednesday nights, and we just take some time here in the podcast to delve a little deeper, maybe follow a rabbit trail, not a meaningless rabbit trail, hopefully an important rabbit trail. Uh, and that's what we're going to do again today in First Corinthians 6. So I'm Brian. Good to be with you. I'm here with Mike Foch. What's up, everybody? Thanks for taking some time to listen here. So here we are. Uh, today we're going to be looking at First Corinthians 6, specifically verses 9 through 11. And Mike, do you want to give us a summary of that scripture passage before yeah. we get into it? Yeah, so again, the... the the flow here is Paul's actually talking to the Corinthians about not suing one another in court and what a horrible testimony that is and how as Christians they should recognize that that is a horrible testimony before the unbelieving world. And then interestingly enough, he kind of wraps up that section there with uh, really it's, it's kind of just a correction to them and an admonishment to them that their purpose is so much higher than they're recognizing and that the unsaved people or the unrighteous people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lays out a little bit of a list where he says there in verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And it's right there we kind of want to focus because this becomes one of the clearest passages in the New Testament yes. that deals with homosexuality issues. But he says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So he he's admonishing them because they are not realizing their identity in Christ and they're not living in accordance with their identity in Christ. And then he shows what their identity outside of Christ was again. And in doing that, he mentions very directly uh, the sin of homosexuality, but in particularly in reference to those two Greek words that are in that passage, He's directly addressing it in a very specific way that we don't always see in the New Testament. Yeah, and and right there, so the Greek words you're talking about, Micah, in verse 9, you read New King James translated homosexuals and sodomites. Of course, sodomite, not a word really we use in our modern language, but it's a different word in the translation because it's a different word in the Greek text. Mm -hmm. And so that actually gets us to the first uh, concern here. So kind of like last episode, we broke this down into two doctrinal concerns and two applicational concerns. The doctrinal concerns are kind of technical, but they're good. And they're the sort of thing that, you know, there's some technicalities in scripture that the average person doesn't really need to know. Uh, But some technicalities rise to the surface in any given day and age, and actually becomes important for almost every Christian to know. Uh, And so this would be one of those things. And so there are two Greek words in question. And one of the things you hear often is that uh, Christians misinterpret those Greek words. Uh, the language in our English Bibles seems clear. You got the word homosexuals right there in verse 9. Uh, but uh, the Greek words behind those words don't mean exactly, you hear people say, don't mean exactly what the English word, you know, homosexual does mean. They mean something different. So that's one of the technical concerns you hear. Secondly, sometimes people read a passage like this, like you said, this is one of the clearest passages. 
And so often what you hear people say is, well, okay, so Paul talked that way, but Jesus never really talked that way. So in a sense, Jesus didn't directly address it, and we're Christians, we follow Jesus, not Paul. Uh, we shouldn't ascribe our prejudices to Jesus and assume he would call it sinful because we just have no record that he ever did. And so those would be the two doctrinal concerns, the two applicational concerns. If someone didn't follow those lines of objection, and, and we've all run into these things, would be just that talking in such a way uh, as 1 Corinthians 6, 9 speaks, 9, 10, 11, will cause harm. Or uh, related, but not exactly the same, that it's just simply not loving. So those would be our four areas of concern we wanted to hit uh, as we move into it. And we just thought, you know, Mike, you had said early on, you thought this would be maybe good to devote a podcast to as opposed yeah. to maybe a large section of scripture in the study. Yeah, so obviously most of us are going to know people that are homosexual. We are going to be related to them. We're going to face these arguments in the culture. So the <clears throat> the whole passage is not only teaching something about homosexuality, but as I said, it is one of the most direct passages referencing that. It also talks about thieves and heterosexual sin and whatnot. But to to know this passage, I think, is important for believers nowadays. And it's also important because you know not everybody um, who's living in sin is, or particularly a homosexual sin, or wants to defend that is somebody who doesn't have any real argument. They're, they're gonna try to take these passages in the Bible mm -hmm. and skew them. And they're gonna be some people who have degrees, their whole movements in the church, whole churches are splitting over this issue. And, and they have to address this passage because the passage is so clear. So we just thought for, for our congregation and for our benefit, uh, it's good to go over these things and address at least make you aware of some of them and uh, know that there are answers out there in relation to how some people would address these things, whether they're trying to address it doctrinally, literally what the Bible's teaching through these Greek words, or they're just trying to show that it's wrong somehow applicationally, like God wouldn't be like that per se. Yeah, and you might be a person listening to this, and you yourself might uh, have struggled with same-sex attraction, or you might have lived in the gay community. Uh, we have people in our church, just like in the Corinthian church, yeah. who have come out of that community, uh, that lifestyle, who themselves currently even. This is one of the issues of sin they wrestle with. We all wrestle with sin issues in our hearts. And so for some people, this is their struggle. And of course, you know, we'll get to this, Mike, but that's exactly what the passage says to the Corinthian church. Uh, and I was thinking as you were talking, Mike, some things, one of the reasons why it's totally appropriate to teach this passage and not spend a ton of time on this issue is because Paul doesn't spend a ton of time right. on this issue. It's appropriate to spend time on it because it's such a big deal in our culture, but you don't have to because it's not the focus of the passage. However, I, something you said just made me think this. You have these things in the scripture where they're almost just sort of tossed off, like everyone knows this is true. And you can imagine if you heard Paul say this, stopping him, wait a second, can you back up? A couple sentences ago, you said that there were people who were formerly homosexuals and now they were saved and they were in your congregation. Is that even a sin? And he would have gone, oh, oh yeah. And then he could have talked to you about it sure. at length, but it, it wasn't a main focus of his, but the fact that it was said almost casually here in the word of God, I think shows that Paul 
took for granted the straightforwardness, the understandability, and the clarity of what of what he's saying here. So anyway, that's maybe a little bit of a side issue, but <laughs> a side issue to a side issue. Yeah. Why don't you throw out real quick before we yeah. get into the first one, a couple, anybody who's listening that wants maybe some more resources, that's like good. you would want to read more about this afterwards, what what you think would be the best stuff. Yeah, so there's three things really, Mike, you and I have both, we've used here at church, um, and I'll go in order of probably the, how much we've used them. The shortest, uh, and we've passed this out, I don't know how many of these we've passed out, yeah. a little silver book. A uh, little paperback by Sam Albury, and it's just called "Is God Anti-Gay?" This is a book that's appropriate to give to anybody. Sam Albury himself uh, comes came out of a an active homosexual lifestyle, writes with a lot of compassion, knows the struggle firsthand, has friends in the gay community. He's a perfect guy to write this, and this is a book that we've given to teenagers as well as it's not a it's not a fluff book. It's serious. It's just short and super clear. Um, so that's the first one thing we would re- we would recommend that anyone wants to read more, delve a little deeper. Going up in terms of length, right, a little bit longer, a little more detailed, is Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? So this is maybe twice as long as Sam Albury's book, still not that long. And, and that book will get you into some of the more technical kinds of arguments. And the thing about this, Mike, you know, we've all run into these videos on YouTube where all of a sudden you click on something and you're being faced with a pretty academic technical article about Greek language, Greek culture, ancient writings. Most of us are not prepared to discuss 1 Corinthians 6 on the level of uh, Greek culture and uh, what Plato wrote. And like, so you can get bowled over, right? Yeah. So DeYoung's book will get you to a place where you can have a, a serious, educated conversation with the average person on the street or even someone who really knows what they're talking about. DeYoung's great at breaking complex things down uh, to simple, helpful language. But if you want to go all the way and read what I think is probably the best academic work, it's Robert, I think it's Gagnon. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, It's the Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. Anytime you get the word hermeneutics into a book title, you know you're you're going all the way (laughs) there. It's going to be serious. So this is long, super detailed um, a f- years ago, I read it cover to cover because I felt like I had to for the work I was doing. And actually, it was not boring. He's a good writer. He writes with passion and and feeling and heart, even in the middle of all his super technical arguments about Greek and, and theology. So I highly recommend And I'll quote him a bunch of times. So those would be the three resources I would recommend. Uh, a lot of stuff by Rosario Butterfield's great. She has a great testimony uh, interview with, with Marvin Alasky from World Magazine. All of her stuff is phenomenal, too. Her, her book, Testimony, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, as a story, is just awesome to give to anybody. Yeah, and Sam Albury has a site, livingout.org, mm-hmm. yep. um, where they have some good resources. So there's there's other things that you can jump into here if you feel like you need um, a little bit more. This is just kind of whetting your appetite for that. And if you're here at church, come talk to us. We sure. love to, if you got conversations with people in your family at work, come let's talk. We'd love to work through any sort of issues. So you want to hit these four things here? Yeah, let's go. So two doctrinal and two applicational. So the first one we said is just simply this idea that Christians are misinterpreting, and the Bible translations even probably mistranslate these Greek words. So it's two Greek words in verse 9. The one word is malakos. The other word is arsenikoites. 
Uh, in plural here, it's malakoi and arsenikoitai. Those would be the two words. So malakos is the word that trans, uh, is translated homosexuals in the English uh, translations we have, and it means soft ones. That's the definition of the word. So Robert Gagnon says through his research that this word should be understood uh, based on even extra-biblical sources as the passive partner in a homosexual intercourse. This is a pretty adult uh, topic. Yeah. And the arsenikoitai would be the active partner. Uh, so the Greeks at this time used those word malakos specifically for the passive person in the relationship, but also people who intentionally engaged in the process of feminizing themselves to erase their masculine appearance and manner. So they knew about this, they had this in their yeah. culture, that was the word they used. The other word, which is translated sodomites here, is, is from two Greek words, the word for man and the word for bed, and Paul sort of slams them together, and literally you could translate this uh, man-bedders, those who take other males to bed as if their partner was a woman. So those two words appear in the Septuagint Greek translation of Leviticus 18, 22, and 20, verse 13. And uh, probably the word was coined by Jews of that time from by combining those two words in Leviticus there. So Paul uses these two words to refer, as we said, to the active and passive partners in homosexual activity. And, and Gagnon's big point is, in doing so, what he's focusing on there is the acts themselves. He's focusing on people who do these things, not what we would call orientation. That's super important, I think, because in our day and age, most of the discussion has to do with people's inner proclivities, their feelings, their orientation on the inside. Paul isn't really getting into that discussion with these words. He's just saying those who give into those urges and act them out, he says in this text, uh, without repenting of those sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes people say that these words only refer to really sort of narrow slices of society. They talk, yeah. you'll hear people talk about temple prostitution, mm -hmm. or you'll hear people talk specifically about the pedophilia that was rampant in the culture at the time, the Greek and then the Roman culture. And so most of the time people say, Paul's referring to activity that explicitly was connected to idol worship, and it's inherently exploitative. So... Sure, he's saying if people were in pagan temples worshiping pagan gods by exploiting you know, young boys or young children yeah. for sexual activity, they would be kept out of the kingdom of God, but, but not people in a committed relationship. So I just want to read a couple quotes from Gagnon's book here because I think they're just so helpful. Uh, and so this is from pages 321 to 329. It's like a nine-page stretch where he again, in detail, breaks this down. hope this isn't too long. Let me just read what Gagnon says here. He says, The focus of the term arsenokoite on homosexual acts rather than orientation only makes the term more inclusive, not less so, because it renders all reasons for entering into homosexual intercourse irrelevant to the condemnation of the act itself. What was wrong, first and foremost for Paul in the case of same-sex intercourse, was the fact that the participants were members of the same sex rather than the opposite sex. It was not a question of whether the relationship was characterized by mutual affirmation or exploitation, uh, parity in age or age disparity, procreative capacity or procreative incapacity, innate sexual urges or contrived sexual urges, or any other extrinsic set of antinomies, I believe that's how you say that word, opposites. If Paul, like Philo and Josephus, condemns both active and passive partners, how does exploitation factor into the equation? A condemnation of both partners indicates the relationship is consensual. 
It is precisely those, Gagnon writes, who willingly engage in same-sex intercourse, who follow their sinful innate impulses for forbidden sex, who enjoy it, who show no remorse for their conduct, and are under no coercion from others that Paul and Philo, a Jewish philosopher writer of the time, reserve their greatest scorn for. Not the exploitative forms of same-sex intercourse, but the non-exploitative and fully consensual forms are the most heinous. This is Gagnon's language. Because then the participants are entirely without excuse. It is self-evident then that the condemnation of the terms malakoi and arsenikoitai are correctly understood in our contemporary context when they are applied to every conceivable type of same-sex intercourse. And then I read another uh, commentary by Anthony Thistleton on 1 Corinthians He has a long discussion where he agrees with Gagnon, and then he adds this one sentence. He says, Paul witnessed around him both abusive relationships of power and money and examples of genuine love between males. So we should not misunderstand, Thistleton says, Paul's worldly knowledge. So all of that to say, in Greek culture, they had both the obviously uh, sinful forms of exploitation and what are called today loving, committed, exclusive relationships. But Paul's use of these Greek words uh, means that he said all, under the inspiration of the Spirit, all homosexual activity is sinful. Uh, But I think verse 11 is great because that's some strong language there. Yeah, He offers hope right there. Such were some of you. In the church were people who who had that in their past and they're washed, they're sanctified. They're justified. They're part of the church. And in our church, there are those people. And in most churches today, uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have all those things in their past and, and, and even, you know, had been in their hearts and all that. And God has included them in the family yeah. of God. Yeah. So it's important, I think, for anybody just hearing this, what, what you should sense or what should always give you a warning is when somebody is looking at the word of God, and they begin to acknowledge that there was some form of homosexual sin that was wrong, like the exploitive sense or without some type of committed relationship tied to it. But the other forms weren't wrong. And right. the Bible never speaks to that directly. It only talks about the wrong forms. You you never see that anywhere in Scripture. And, and that's why, again, this passage is so important because he's, he's getting as detailed about... Now, Paul also said there are hidden things of darkness we shouldn't even talk about. So Paul's not going to dive into all the gritty details of sin in their day and age. They also knew that. But he gets pretty specific here with these words. Where essentially you're talking about active and passive partners of the act, literally the act itself, which was important in Corinth because Corinth was such a sexualized society. Uh, And I think that's why we see him more specific here than in other places. But Again, just so a beginning discussion for you as a believer, if you hear any type of argument that, yes, the Bible begins to talk about these things, it talks about sodomites or this type of sexual interaction, but it was only talking about the negative or idolatrous version versus the good version that God was happy with, that actually isn't anywhere in the Scripture or the language of the Scripture. And and contained in what you're saying, Mike, is that the only kind of sexual activity that is praised, not forbidden in Scripture, yes. is between a man and a woman in covenant marriage. And that's why the um, 
the list doesn't only talk about homosexuals. It starts off with what we would probably consider yeah, heterosexual. heterosexual sin, fornicators and adulterers. Yes. So same list. So God's not saying through Paul, I hate gay people and I like straight people. He's saying those who use God's gift of sexuality outside covenant marriage between one man and one woman, whether it's a man and man or a man and woman, whatever it is, that unrepentant sin excludes someone from the kingdom of God. So he very clear here in in scripture as to what uh, what Paul was saying. And I think that leads us on to the second issue, which is people will say, Jesus never addressed the issue. Okay, Paul says that. Yes. Mike even said, this is one of the clearest passages, but show me in the Gospels where Jesus talked about it. Uh, so I'll say this. he People can say that, but I think understanding the way Christ spoke is helpful. So Jesus did actually address it, but he addressed it in a way that made sense for his context. So what do I, what do I mean by that? You take a passage like Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. And in uh, that passage, in verse 21, Jesus gives a list of things that come out of the heart of human beings that he says defile a man. This is very similar to Paul's list. Defiling means separate you from the presence of God in a Jewish context. And he he says the word fornications. Fornications, along with murderers, (laughs) adulteries, right, will separate me from the presence of God. That word translates the Greek word porneia. It means sinful sexuality. So here's the important question to ask. When, when the people in Jesus' day heard him say that, how would a Jew living in the first century in Judea have understood what that Greek word porneia meant? How would they have defined what was sinful sexu- sexually? They would have looked at the Old Testament law, especially places like Leviticus 18 through 20. Anything listed in that Levitical law, which details a lot of sexual sins, the Jews would have considered that porneia. So what Jesus is saying in Mark 7 is, forget hand-washing. That, that's not going to help you with yeah. defilement. <laughs> Go back to Leviticus 18. Those issues reveal what's in your heart. Those are the things that defile you. So when he used the word porneia, he was mentioning homosexuality because in his context, the reality of homosexuality was contained in that word. You could refer, if you were a first century Jew, to homosexuality and all the other sexual sins listed in the Bible just by saying that one word. Yeah. And they would have understood that was that was included in that. Yeah, so it's an important verse for for you guys to remember again. Anybody who begins to have this discussion says anything like Jesus didn't talk about it. Again, Mark 7, 21 through 23, that word fornications in the English, porneia in the Greek, as Brian said, they would know it related to Leviticus 18, which was heterosexual sin, even looking upon the nakedness of another, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, yeah, I think rape adultery, yep. right? A, a list of things. So instead of going through the list, Jesus said the comprehensive word. And and again, that's it isn't that he never addressed it. He just didn't use, as far as we know, the specific words Paul used in Corinth. And I think when I first looked into this, that troubled me a little bit. And I thought, but why didn't he, right? And the thing I realized was, it's consistent in Jesus' life when the culture around him agrees with him on an issue, he doesn't tend to single it out. What he what he gets super specific on is when his Jewish culture disagree with him. So like when you see Jesus teach on divorce, he's getting specific because they disagree with him on the way they talked about divorce. But 
he didn't need to single out uh, an approval of homosexuality because they agreed with him on that topic. However, when the gospel moved out of the Jewish context into the wider Gentile world, and now you were in a, in a Roman and a Greek culture that completely disagreed with the way Christ's stance on that and would have never included homosexual, homosexual sex mm-hmm. in a list of sexual sins. So Greek culture had other sexual sins they, just, they, they sure. didn't like, but that wasn't one of them. As soon as the gospel moved into that context, now you get things like the letters of Paul where the specific detailed words are used to be very clear. Otherwise, if Paul had said porneia, the average Greek-speaking Roman would not have thought to include homosexuality in that list. So he says porneia, and then he says, and I mean this too, this counts too. Uh, and so that's why it's in, it's in the New Testament outside of the Gospels that you get the specific mention. Yeah, and, and I think just for any believer thinking through these things too, it's important to mention Jesus, before he ascended back into heaven, told his disciples to go into all the world, preaching the gospel, teaching all the things that he commanded them. So some people want to always divide between Jesus's teaching and the apostles, but the apostles make it clear their teaching is Jesus's teaching. So the things that maybe we don't have firsthand account directly written down by maybe Peter or through Mark or something like that, they still come to us later because these guys taught what Jesus taught. They just taught more specifically or things that they heard that maybe we didn't hear. So even Paul says in the book of Acts that it was a common saying of Jesus that it's more blessed to give than to receive. But we don't don't have that in the gospels. But apparently that was a common saying. And they knew it. And they knew it and they shared it. So. Uh, the the person who would even say Paul says that, but where does Jesus say it, say it? Doesn't understand that Paul saying what Jesus says, and 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 the apostles were applying Christ's teachings to these different contexts. So one way to think about it, this is a great point, Mike. One way to think about it is okay, but if Jesus had wandered around, uh, Tur- you know, Roman Turkey, what we call Turkey, right, Asia Minor, like Paul did, and he had encountered non-Jewish Gentiles, what would he have talked about? Well, he would have said the things Paul's saying. That, that's, we know how Jesus would have talked to the wider Gentile world because we have the apostles and the inspiration of the Spirit taking the teachings of Christ, especially some that were a little more general, and applying them specifically in a yeah. Gentile context. So some people are gonna come on that doctrinal edge, right? The Greek words, they don't really talk about these committed relationships or the same thing, you know, well, Jesus never said it. That's that's more like, hey, this is doctrinal. A lot of people are just gonna come on a feeling cultural yep. level. They're gonna come to you and say, like you said, but isn't this mean? Yep. Right, where where do we go applicationally then? Yeah, isn't this mean? This is gonna cause harm. I mean, so you might get into yeah, a conversation literally. with someone about Greek words for 10 minutes and they might realize, oh, he actually knows some things about Greek words. I just watched a YouTube video. Uh, okay, but even if what you're saying is true, this is gonna hurt people. And I think the thing that, look, no Christian wants to hurt people. This is really important. Like yeah. any real believer takes that criticism seriously. If I give off the, the vibe, like I don't care, well, there's something wrong about me and sure. my connection now to Jesus and other people. So we care. But what's happened to a believer is, you know, you come into contact with the gospel and you realize, wait, I don't know like almost anything and I certainly don't really understand people. They're really complicated. I don't know what hurts people and what helps people unless I let God tell me. 
And you turn to God's word and you realize that the thing that hurts people the most is separation from God. God is the, he's the source of all life, all health, all, all, all healing, everything good. So to be separated from God is going to hurt me. So anything that brings me closer to God helps me. Anything that puts distance between me and God harms me. So that means that sin harms people more than anything because it's sin, the Bible says, that separates from God yeah. and leads to eternal death. So if I tell people that Jesus calls them to repent of their sin and they listen to me, that's not going to harm them. It's going to bless them. It's going to help them eternally. It's going to heal them because that will put them in close contact with God. That's going to bring them closer to God. Our culture says it will harm them because our culture refuses to look at the harm that our culture's ideas are, are perpetrating. And what happens, and I think all of us, if we, if we have eyes to see, we'll see this. People follow the things our culture tells them to follow. And then when it hurts them, our culture blames Christians. It sure. blames God and Christians for telling people to repent. Specifically, I mean, this is a horrible thing, but the idea of suicide. It's not, you know, the idea that if, because when people say harm, the ultimate harm is suicide, right? If you say this to people, they're going to kill themselves. And the, the horrible thing about that is, it's not Christians who are putting that idea out there. Christians aren't going around saying, listen to us or you'll commit, like, or, or commit suicide. Or if you, like, the idea of suicide keeps being being pushed by our culture. They're the one who keeps saying the word. Um, they're the ones who keep talking about kids killing themselves. And what it's doing is it's putting that idea firmly in the minds of every young person. It's the ultimate dark scare tactic. If you listen to Christians, you'll kill yourself. Uh, but what you realize is our culture is permeated by lies that are specifically designed to keep people from finding life in Christ and, and cleansing in Christ. Because the truth is the opposite of what the culture is saying. Christians don't want anyone to get hurt. We don't want anyone to harm ourselves. Christians are anti-suicide. Yeah. And we know that if you come to Christ, he'll heal you so that you'll never harm yourself. Jesus will make you whole and you'll never want to hurt yourself ever again. So it won't cause harm if we preach this message and people listen to us what causes harm is the darkness. It's Satan that leads people. If, if you are tempted to harm yourself, that's not the heart of Christ for you. The heart of Christ for you is to come and find healing in God. It, it's the, it's the heart of Satan. It wants people to harm themselves. I think we all like, we all understand and you and I have been in these scenarios where we have a kid whose parent might be in that lifestyle or a grandparent whose grandkids are now in that lifestyle. Or we know a lot of people whose friends they're living in that lifestyle. And now, a parent with a kid and they're looking and the kid's unstable and they're afraid that anybody will say anything negative to them. Yeah. And and the reality is there might not be a way for us to speak the truth, even in love, without that being something that they take negatively. That that's That's just a reality. But like many other situations, you do an intervention for a drug addict, you step in and correct somebody who's living with the wrong attitude. You know they're not going to like the conversation, but you do it because you know it's actually what's best for the person. And the reality is the Bible tells us that the gospel is the most loving thing we can share with anybody. Yeah. And we should do it in the right way. But the the world wants us to literally get to the place where if if you speak the truth, you're unloving. And that's the thing that Christians can never surrender on. We, 
we always have to speak the truth. I forget who it was. Somebody said, and I thought it was a good question you can ask them, is what I believe unloving or is the way I'm acting unloving? Which is a great litmus test. Yeah, because how can beliefs be unloving? That's 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 the point is, and especially if it's the truth, which we know this is what we have, the truth. So God considers all people equal, the, the person who's living in sin, heterosexually or homosexually, but he doesn't consider their ideas of life equal. That's important. So we have, it's our call to bring the truth to individuals, even if they're not happy about it. And who knows if we're the only people who will do that in their lives, but it's not unloving to bring the truth. We should do it in a loving way. Right. We don't wanna hate those people, we don't wanna make fun of them. There's bad examples of that out there, we know that. But I think on a more regular level, most of the people that I feel like we've interacted with, they love this person they're interacting with. Yeah. Like I said, it's their parent, it's their sibling, it's their friend, it's their grandkid, they love them and the people connected and they're afraid to do anything that will upset them. But that's where we have to love them enough to speak the truth in love because somebody has to put the truth out there. And in this passage, 9 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, it might start off sounding unloving to people. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But by the time you get to verse 11 and you're hearing Paul talking to the believers, who he knows them personally, and he's like, you were washed, you were sanctified, yeah. you were justified. There's real love in his heart for these people. And to be washed from, from dirtiness, to be sanctified when I was unholy and separate from God, to be justified when I was guilty and sinful, those are the greatest possible things that could happen to me. And so, yeah, this fourth thing is that people will say, well, oh, this is not, this is not loving, right? The second of these applicational things. But... I just think spend some time for Christians who feel rocked by that, like you were saying, Mike, or Christians who were worried for their loved one, like, well, they, mm-hmm. they need approval or, the, or something bad is going to happen. The scriptures will help us get very clear on what people actually need. And repentance leads to being willing to call sin, sin, and identify the actual problem. Because I, I can't get help if I can't identify the problem. Scripture will help me diagnose myself. Repentance leads to verse 11. Do I want to be washed? Do I want to be sanctified? Do I want to be justified? Well, if I say, well, I'm not dirty, well, I'm not unholy, well, I'm not guilty, then I'm going to be stuck. But if I'm willing to come and say, you know what, Lord, I am all those things. Will you wash me? Will you cleanse me? Will you justify me? And, and the Holy Spirit says, yes, that's, that's what the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ is all about. So yes, the sins listed in verse 9 will keep me out of the kingdom of God. But isn't the most loving thing I could do helping my friends see how they can walk through the open door to the kingdom of God? And to to find someone in the kingdom of God, it would, or, or, or to help someone into the kingdom of God would be the most loving thing I could yeah. do. So uh, repentance is what Christ calls everyone to. He's the most loving person who ever lived. Therefore, it's a loving thing to call people to repent. And I just... I had this little sentence written in my notes. People who've never repented don't know what they're missing out on. You think about, you think about all mm-hmm. the people around us and, and just striving for the things they think they need. If they just found out what it felt like and what it was to be washed and sanctified and justified, uh, then they would want everyone to know. Uh, they would want everyone to know what 
uh, what that reality was like. So I, I think it's important too, just to throw out there, we can forget that we are stereotyped by that community as well. Yeah, that's, So that's a cool. lot of that community just thinks a real Christian person is gonna hate them, uh, is just gonna look down on them, would actually treat them in an unloving and harmful manner. But if they run into a real Christian who is actually a loving person, who's gonna be kind to them, who has health and life and joy in Jesus Christ, but will also speak to tr the truth to them, say hello to them, mm -hmm. talk to them. There are people out there who who are interested, who wanna hear the truth, but but we've been stereotyped to them. And I it's important that that community hears the truth from somebody who actually is loving. Yes. Even though they're speaking the truth, they actually are a loving person versus what we know is the stereotype, like the crazy Christian who's just telling them they're going to hell and hates them, which isn't isn't the reality for most folks. Um, but we know it's out there. That's why it's a stereotype. But for most of us, I think the danger is never saying anything or being afraid to say something when we're probably exactly the type of people who need to say something because those people need to receive it from a Christian who actually loves God and loves them. Yeah, Satan's propaganda has permeated that community, and he knows that the worst thing that could happen to his plans, exactly, Mike, is that they would run into a real Christian. Yeah. And we've probably all had the experience where someone says, oh, I didn't think you were a Christian. You're so, you're so nice. Or you seem so intelligent. <laughs> you're like, oh, thanks, <laughs> right? Um, and actually, the verse that goes right with what you're saying, Mike, is in Leviticus 19. It, the second part of it, of verse Leviticus 19.18 has that second great command that the Lord says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But leading up to that statement, Leviticus 19.17 says exactly what you were just saying. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. Hatred in Leviticus 19.17 is not feeling hateful feelings towards someone. It's being unwilling to confront your neighbor when you see him in sin. That's that's called hating. Yeah. No, don't hate. Go to him. Plead with him to leave his sin, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, uh, you know, don't take vengeance, it says. Don't bear a grudge. All those things could be hatred, mm. but another form of hating someone would be to not care enough about them to go to them and say, listen, this is not going to end well. This is going to separate you from God. Why don't you step out of this and find the love of God? That's loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think it's, for Christians, it's helpful to be clear, like, A, like you said, Mike, um, you know, or like I was thinking when you said, a Satan lies to the, that community about us. And B, uh, it really is loving for us to be clear in our mind. This is actually the most loving thing we can do. To be, to be loving people in our demeanor and then to do the loving thing when we need to say the true words, right? All key. Okay. I'll throw something at you here off script. Good. So I'm just thinking, we and you probably have these conversations. So say I'm a person who wants to do that, right? I got somebody at work or somebody in my family or somebody's trying to connect with me. How far do I go in my interaction with them or this community without, you know, you get get afraid I'm giving credence maybe to what they're doing Showing or approval. I'm, a, I'm a, a partaker in their sin, right? We, we know there's people that want to give thumbs up to... Uh, weddings and pronouncements online, like 
hey, you came out as gay, great for you, or yeah, yeah. you know, where where would you say that line is between what you would do and not do? I bet we could we could both go back and forth on this. Um, well, that the thing you just mentioned is interesting because it's always it seems clear to me that I can't celebrate someone in something that's helping them on the road away from God. So I can't say, hey, it's really good that you got engaged or something because what they're doing is committing to locking themselves into a sin and separating them from God. Um, But yeah, there's so many situations where it's like, well, if I'm kind or do I have to use their pronouns or, you know, all those things. Um, And probably each one has its own line we could draw. I do think though later in 1 Corinthians... I think it's First Corinthians. Sometimes I get confused between the two, but you know that you know the discussion, Mike, where he's talking about uh, going to temples and eating, eating the food yeah, yeah, versus go. And so what he says is, if a non-believer asks you over for dinner, go hang out with them. So you're going to hang out with an idol worshiper, and Paul's not worried that you're going to be approving of their life of idolatry. If they offer you food that's been sacrificed to the idol, and I think the context is it's clear they want to see if you'll eat the idol food, he says, then don't eat it because they want to see if you'll partake of things that are idolatrous. And he says the same thing when he's like, eat what it, it doesn't matter if it was offered to an idol or not. You buy it in the market, eat it. But don't go to the feast and sit down and honor the idol and, and raise your glass to the idol and celebrate it because that's demonic, Paul says, yeah, right? Yeah. He says in one text, he says, an idol's nothing. It doesn't matter if the meat was offered to an idol. Eat the meat, but don't sit in front of it because that is participating in the system. So maybe this is too vague of an answer, but my first thought to that question would be something like, eat with non-believers. Eat the, don't worry, like nothing's gonna contaminate you. Jesus ate with all kinds of people. He didn't get contaminated, right? Yeah. People are not sources of contamination. Uh, but anything that would involve me in complicity or celebration, of the sin itself. Like I can't put on a rainbow shirt and go to a pride parade, even if I love some of the people that are involved, because that is complicity with and and assent to, explicit assent right. to the sin itself. Right. So can I could I hang out with a bunch of gay friends? Absolutely. Can I go out to eat with them? The Bible says yes, that go eat with them. But as soon as something they would understand it as I am giving, and I think that's the, the this meat was offered to idols discussion. If they're going to understand something I'm doing as giving assent to their particular sins, that's probably where we're going to need to draw the line. Mm-hmm. They see this as as um, agreeing with them in this issue, not just being kind to me. Yeah. I think that would be my first thought at that. Yeah, you agree? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think we said I've said similar things to people. Like wh- whatever context we're in, we're always there in Christ. Our identity is I'm here as a Christian, a person saved from my sins, following Jesus. So we should always be able to keep that type of, I think, identity clear. Again, even when Jesus sat down with sinners, he sat at a table with Matthew and his friends and called them all sinners. Aren't I here to call sinners to repentance? So. He, he wasn't there as just somebody hanging out with tax collectors. He was there as the savior trying to minister to people who had needs. So I think just in general, I guess I would say, like whatever you might do with an unsaved coworker, you could do with a, a homosexual coworker. You know, hey, unsaved coworker, we come eat afterwards. Let's get some wings and watch the Eagles yes. game. Sure, go ahead. 
want to see a movie together? Some movies, fine. Other movies, probably not. Right. right. The like whatever you might do with an unsaved person, that that it's not a type of sin that we then treat them differently. If I see a homosexual yep. coworker broken down on the side of the road, I go to help them out. That's the the same heart that should be behind any other sin. But even with an alcoholic, I'm not gonna take him to the bar. Uh, because I know, number one, I'm giving credence then to his lifestyle, and also I'm encouraging him in something that could take him away from the Lord for eternity. I'm not going to buy said. him a beer. Right. right. And the same thing, you wouldn't go with a gay friend to a gay bar or something like that. Or, as you said, encourage them in a lifestyle that we know is going to separate them from God for all eternity. And that's that's almost the whole discussion here that Paul even has in 1 Corinthians 6. It's your identity is totally messed up. You don't understand the purpose and you're not walking in the purpose that God has for your life. You're living like a totally unsaved person. Right. So I think we have to have the right context, know why we're with these individuals. And as long as they're happy to have a Christian around who's gonna represent Jesus Christ and they'll allow you to speak in their lives, we should be there. But even Jesus, when people wanted him to go, then he left. Yeah, when they asked, yes, I was just thinking of that. When people said, we don't want you here, he he walked away. Sometimes yeah. there, I think of contexts where I know there'd be a lot of hostility towards Christians, and I think, I, pro- we probably, I probably need to go there. And I'm not saying, there might be times where the Lord sure. had has people do things and face hostility on purpose, but it is interesting. It's not always the more spiritual decision, because... If people didn't want Jesus there, he said, fine. Yeah. And that's shocking, actually. And so there might be places where we're like, well, they need to hear the gospel. But it's like, yeah, but they they don't want you there. Yeah. And maybe the Lord would say, it's fine. You can can leave. So hopefully these things were encouraging for you. You know, hopefully there's a couple technical things there. If you hear those types of arguments, this isn't the type of sexuality Paul was talking about. That's not what the Greek or the Hebrew saying, or Jesus never responded to that. You know now the scriptures there you can kind of turn to and look at. And certainly some of the thoughts for just more, I would say, the cultural applicational arguments. People just feel like it's harmful or unloving. Um, Just kind of how to respond to some of those things and and why it's not and why it's the type of love that we actually need to give yes to sinners who are lost so final thoughts Bri? uh just that we're all aware you know we're, we're recording this that that what we're talking about will be countercultural but like you said Mike it is truly loving to I'll say boldly unflinchingly witness to the truth uh, we're witnessing to the way forward, to the path to God, to life, to light. And just that this has been the challenge that all people of God in all times uh, have faced, right? The, the prophets did it, the apostles did it, the Christians have done it for 2,000 years to say things that people needed to hear even when they thought they didn't want to hear it. And uh, I guess it's our turn at this point. All right. All right. See you guys. Peace. Peace.